0: My wife always tells me that's not how we met.
1: (laughs) You mean there There weren't fireworks the minute you you and Brandy laid eyes on each other? That's not what happened?
0: (laughs) No, that's that's exactly what happened. She was like, oh my gracious, I need to marry this (laughs) man.
2: You're very memorable, like you said earlier, right? (laughs) Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Framework Podcast. I'm your, one of your hosts, Anna Trujillo-Limon, Director of Coaching and Advisor Content, and I'm excited to be joined by my other co-host, Jamie Hopkins. Jamie, welcome to the show.
3: Anna, thanks for uh, kicking us off and leading today's conversation. It's good to see you. I see you're in Denver today. And uh, did you have, a, Did you added a new plant into your background there? It I did. I,
2: well, he, he's not really new. He's just in the room now. He was in the living room before, but I wanted to spice it up and add it. Um, he's getting a lot of rain. It's been raining in Denver nonstop, which is why the hair is pretty big today. So that's that's OK, though. We need the moisture in our air desert. But um, today we are so excited to be joined by my friends, Anna and Keith. Um, so I wanted to just kick off the show uh, and ask you all, what was your first money memory? Ooh.
0: Oh, you want to go?
2: <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Keith, you go ahead.
0: Um, my first, so from a very early age, I've always been interested in the idea of money and like collecting money. Mm-hmm. So from a very early age, I used to collect half dollars and, and dollar pieces, like in this, in this like blue, large piggy bank of a of a pencil. Um, so I did that from, I don't know, very early. So probably like second, third grade up until high school, I used to collect half dollars and, and 50 cent pieces.
2: So the piggy bank was shaped like a pencil?
0: Yep. Who I,
2: love, I used to have one that was shaped like it's a combination too. lock. Two dollar <laughs> bills. Okay. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. I what like the $2 I... bills. I actually used to put them, behind, I had a picture frame, and whenever I'd find $2 bills, I would, like, put them behind the picture and the picture frame and, like, yeah. seal it back up.
2: <laughs> Do you still so have that? It's a gun hiding spot.
3: I actually, spot. so I actually still do. So there's that little trunk that's behind me when I'm at home. And it is my, like, I think it's my eighth grade, like, photo. So, like, the eighth grade class I was in. And I have all the $2 bills shoved in behind that. So, you so know, you, you have you, a
2: framed photo of your eighth grade class? In your yeah. Is it a special a, class? <laughs> yeah. That's
3: well, so it's bizarre. in a trunk, though. It's not, like, out. But, yeah, that, you know... They're somewhat special. <laughs> okay, it's different. Speaking like of it. framed
0: photos of, of, of eighth grade, like I don't know if you can see behind me, but it's a picture of me and in, in the National Junior Honor Society in, in, uh, in eighth grade.
2: Oh, wow. It, it is framed.
0: It is framed. See?
2: Pages so with, with me are very fun. Finding commonalities in right, exactly. eighth grade. Exactly.
1: <laughs> I don't I don't have any of those kind of pictures in my house, although my mother, like my mother's house, like most parents, I think, is a giant like memorial to my childhood. (laughs) So if I want to visit them, I just go over to mom's.
2: (laughs) That's that's a blessing that y'all have that because I'm I'm the youngest of four. And my mom, Mm -hmm. I think by the time I came around, she was like, "Eh." (laughs) Like everybody else has a nice photo album and mine has like two or three pages and that's it. But it's okay. I'm not bitter. Um, so, <laughs> Anna, tell us about your first money memory
1: Yeah, so mine's a little different I think my first money memory was um, I remember it was summer vacation I was probably six or seven And my mom always found a way And like tried to make a dollar out of 15 cents That's just how she was And so I remember, you know, I was not we were never like the summer camp family. I never went to summer camp my entire childhood. It was like, I was with grandma. That was my summer camp. Um, but my mom tried to do little excursions for us. So she, I remember her like sitting down and trying to figure out how she was going to pay for us to go to Sesame place in Pennsylvania, which Jamie, you probably know, right. Um, with my niece and nephew, um, that summer. And I remember her saying like, you know what? I don't need to stress about this. Like it's only money. It'll work out. Right. And so that was, um, a very strong message that I, that stuck with me for a really long time, um, from my childhood.
3: Yeah. Sesame place is still around. I have never been, I've never been to it. I think my kids might've been, but I, I'm not, I can't say that for sure, (laughs) but I have not been. So, Never yeah, back.
1: Um, that was, I, I don't think we went very much, but I remember probably going once or
2: twice in my childhood. Um, yeah, good memories. Yeah, so I'm always curious about how people got into the profession, but more so what they wanted, like, what did y'all want to be when you were little growing up? And then how did you come to where you are now? Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, So I, I always knew that I wanted to do better financially because I think I grew up with a lot of like financial instability. And so at first I wanted to be a marine biologist. I remember being around like 10 or 11 and saying, I I wanted to do that. I always really liked whales and dolphins and things like that. And I remember talking to my older cousin who's, he's probably 15 years older than me at that time. And he was like, you know, you're going to not make any money if you do that. So it's probably not a great idea. So I quickly abandoned that on my older cousin's guidance (laughs) and sort of figured that I would do like some kind of international work, um, NGO work. That was kind of what I had anticipated. Um, And then, you know, I got a call from a recruiter after college and ended up in the business. Um, It was a real happenstance. um, And I've been here since. What
2: about you, Keith?
0: Yeah, so so for me, like growing up, I wanted to be either a pediatrician or a dentist mm-hmm. because my mother was a teacher and uh, you know she was you know passionate about her work. But from my vantage point, she was overworked and underpaid. So that didn't seem like a good career path to go down. And then you know growing up in D.C. in the eighties and nineties, um, the the uh, the models that we have, for, like the professional class, with the people that we saw. So uh, my, my uh, pediatrician was black and my, um, and my dentist were, were black and I wanted to be a pediatrician or a dentist for the longest time. Cause I figured, you know, they're in the community, you know, they are helping the community in their, in their, um, their respective fields and, and making a difference and they're probably making good money. So for the longest time, I wanted to be one of those, go down one of those career paths. And then probably around high school, um, Was leaning toward being a clinical psychologist because I I just like the idea of somebody like sitting down on my couch, laying down on my couch, and I just, you know, spend an hour with them and solve all their problems. So I just like kind of enjoyed that idea. And then when I got to college, realized that you actually have to be good in science to be a clinical psychologist.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You had to get A's and
0: B's in science to be a clinical psychologist. And my mind didn't work that way. I, I get numbers and I get, dollar signs and, and, and spreadsheets, but not so much, um, you know, my, my wife is a, is a scientist. She has her PhD in molecular medicine. So like, just, I, I don't have a scientist brain. So once I realized that, I was like, okay, well maybe being a financial advisor is a, is a great marriage of, of the psychology. And then like the, the money stuff, which I
3: actually enjoy.
0: And I don't have to take any more science classes.
3: There you
0: go. Yeah.
3: It's uh yeah. I, I like the idea of science Keith, but like, I wasn't good at it. Right. Like chemistry never really clicked for me. Like, like, but I I wish I understood it, but it just never resonated with me, you know, like in the sense of understanding it to be able to explain it. But I was like, Oh, it's like, it's cool. Science stuff happens. And, uh, but yeah, it never clicked with me either. The how did so how did both of you kind of enter in and you know start the path of like owning your own firm too because that's not you know not everybody takes that path not everybody gets there um, but it's something that both of you have done and you know I, I, I guess well I'll, I'll push so Keith maybe you answer first and Anna you probably go second um, since we're reversing the last one
0: <laughs> yeah yeah so so for me it came down to you know, I got to a point where I finished business school. Um, 30, 31 at the time, you know, did all the credentials, had the the CFA, the CFP, the finished my, my MBA. And, um, you know, the path that a lot of my my peers went down were at least the ones that were in wealth management. Um, they went and worked at the big wall street firm. So, you know, Goldman, JP Morgan, Barclays, credit suites at the time, they were all recruiting in my school. And, um, you know, they had minimums, right? So the minimums, you know, on, on the low end were $10 million for, you know, private bank, private wealth roles, you know, coming out of, uh you know, the MBA program where, where I attended. And, you know, for me, being someone that was always dedicated and committed to to working, you know, within uh, the Black community and, and using my talents and skills to uh, advance and, and empower those who um, came from a similar background always was appealing to me. And I didn't see a path where I could do that if I was going to be constrained by ten million dollar minimums, right? So then the, the the question became, well, where do I go? What, what do I do? And you know, I have high standards and you know, pretty pretty um, you know, you no know, rigorous standards when it comes to how I want to uh, deliver services to clients. Um, and I, I didn't find any other firms that kind of you know met those criteria of being able to work with households of color and also uh, meet know, what I consider pretty stringent criteria for the professionals that I want to work with. So that kind of set me on the path of of being independent and, 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 you know, doing my own thing, so to speak.
2: Part of being a great fiduciary is helping your clients understand their full financial picture, and it should be no different for your life. Do you know what your business is worth? Get your firm valuation today with our free valuation calculator. Whether you're looking to share equity with your team, buy another firm, prepare for an exit, or just simply want to see the market value of your business, visit carsongroup.com slash valuation to get started.
3: I love that answer, Keith. It's awesome. How about you, Anna?
1: Yeah, so I, you know, spent about 10 years in like corporate wealth management mostly working with ultra high net worth individuals and kind of various types of industry roles and i remember i was just really unhappy with my my situation and you know as someone who was an employee my first sort of foray out of that was to look for other jobs. And I realized that even if I was going to get another job, it was going to be more of the same. And what, you know, I felt really strongly was I wanted to work with people who were like me, similar to Keith. You know, I come from uh, an immigrant household. I come from, you know, an economically modest household. And so, and family. And I knew that I was really fortunate because of my own drive, but then also just having to have landed in wealth management to have gained a lot of financial management skills, investment knowledge, and all of that. And so I felt a sense of duty to share that. And I wanted to work with people and really just teach them the fundamentals because I knew that if I can help more people that, you know, they might've just been just like me and went to college, went to grad school, did the right things, but didn't necessarily have the skills that they needed to do better with their finances, that I could have a real impact because I just kept thinking if, you know, I can... Um, if I can break that cycle of poverty and break that cycle of like really dysfunctional money management in my own family, then why can't, and that has ripple effects. Why can't other people do mm-hmm. that? And so I, you know, I actually listened to like a Kitsis podcast episode of somebody who similarly, you know, went into the RAA space and, um, and that was a light bulb moment for me. And that was in late 2018. And, you know, after lots of research and conversations with my husband, we made the decision to launch my own firm um, because I, I just felt like, you know, I can always go get another job in wealth management, but maybe this thing will work. And thankfully, thankfully it did. Uh, and then, you know, we can, we can get into our stories of how Keith and I came together. We sort of launched separately on our own um, and, yeah. and made the decision to come together after a few years yeah, do you remember?
3: Oh, Jean- I, I was just gonna say, do you remember who that, that that who was on the episode or you don't remember? Yeah, it
1: was no. Mary Beth Storjahan, um, right. who's now the co CEO of Abacus, and I actually talked to Mary Beth um a couple months ago and told her about that exact experience. I remember it really vividly. It was um it felt like a light bulb went on and it, I can see a very clear before and after for that, because what it felt like was I was going to be beholden to what my firm, whatever firm it was told me was acceptable, whether that be the size of clients I would work with when I would even, you know, be able to take on certain additional responsibilities and what that would look like, what my compensation would look like. It just felt like everything was being dictated to me and I did not have that much autonomy and I'll, you know, financial advisors in the spectrum of employees are pretty free, right? They have a lot of time autonomy and things like that. But in terms of business development and building a book of business, it's pretty homogenous in terms of corporate. And so I knew that that just wasn't going to work for me. And candidly, you know, I, I come from a a family that, you know, is very family oriented and I wanted to continue that Um, and, be able to be there for my family and also have that impact in in the world. And Mary Beth was a really great example of doing that. So it was it was transformative for me for sure.
2: I love that. So see listening to podcasts is transformative, listeners, if you heard that. <laughs> and, and somebody out there is listening to this and being transformed <laughs> by you guys. <laughs> so um back in October, I was blessed to get together with you guys. Um and your team after you had just merged, Anna, you had Dare to yeah. Dream Planning and Keith Grid two partners. And so, tell me your origin story. How did you guys meet? And and then how did this come about that you you merged your firms? And I, I understand you're going through a big rebrand now. So, so let's talk about all that stuff. Let's get into it. Yeah, I'll,
0: I'll let you tell the good. story, Anna, because mm-hmm. I, I I tend to uh, embellish <laughs> <the> stories. <laughs> of course, <laughs> like the origin <laughs> stories, I tend salary. to embellish. According <laughs> to my wife, my wife always tells me that's not how we met.
1: <laughs> you mean there's fireworks the, the minute you, <laughs> you and brandy laid eyes on each other that's not what happened <laughs>
0: no, that's, that's exactly what happened she's like oh my gracious i need to marry this man."
2: you're very memorable like you said earlier right Her <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> mind is blown
0: that's in my mind like she, she she has a different recollection of, of those yeah.
2: i'm interested to hear that story offline
1: <laughs> <laughs> indeed over drinks. I think that's, that's a good form for it. Um, So Keith and I met in 2020, Um, you know, we spoke on a panel together, you know, in the wake of like George Floyd's murder and all the black lives matter movement. Like that's the summer of 2020 he and I met. And I think, you know, that was a moment for me where I was really leaning into being more vocal. And I think Keith also did, Similarly, we already had sort of our own beliefs and our own viewpoint on it, but I think that moment was an impetus for us to be more loud and out about those um, opinions and things we were seeing. So we were on a panel together that summer and then just stayed in touch um, over the last few years, um, you know, professional, keeping up, getting virtual coffees, what have you, over the last few years. And then it was early last year that Keith came to me and said, listen, I really, I've I've built this practice up to be a certain size and it's going really well. And, you know, I, but I, I feel really strongly that I want to lean in on the investment portion of things. And I need someone who can compliment me and can do, and is interested in doing, and wants to do these other things that, um, I don't necessarily want to spend all my time on and focusing on mainly, you know, actual planning, relationship management, and um, also like operation stuff. And so <clears throat> I was also at a moment in my practice where things were going really well. I feel really blessed and fortunate that, you know, it came with a lot of hard work, but then also just support and um happenstance that things were going really well for me. But what was happening was I was being approached by, with a lot of opportunities that, um, especially I think institutional or like really like foundation type opportunities that did not make sense for me. And candidly, I did not have an interest in managing portfolios. I, understand investments. It's a part of what I do. It's not something that I I don't want to spend my time, you know, reading mutual fund prospectuses and interviewing investment managers. I have absolutely no interest in doing that. So I was, there was a tension there and also thinking about bandwidth and what, so I was at a a sort of venture point with, um, that I actually had some conversations with Sarah Kane at Carson Coaching about and trying to figure out what my path forward was going to be, because I could tell that, keeping up the growth pace. I was, it was not going to work for me. I was going to burn out pretty quickly. And so I needed to do that. So Keith and I had some conversations, you know, we obviously had had a really good values alignment, had spent time sort of casually getting to know each other. And, you know, I think we both were at a, at a fork in the road and realized that it would make sense for us to join together. And so we joined together, um, spent a lot of time talking about how things would work and what our vision for the firm is, and all of that. We can we can get into that too. But we made a decision to join together late last year. And then you know what our goal was. You know I think we recognized that neither of our existing brands were really representative of what we were trying to build and what our vision for the future was going to look like. And so we made the decision to say we're going to rebrand as Re we envision Wealth. And, you know, have all of the sort of um, social media and speaking engagements and things like that, that would represent it and would really be reflective of who we are, what we're doing.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the one thing I'll, I'll add to that is that uh, I think many advisors, when you, particularly advisors, when you start out, you know, solo practitioner and you get to the point where you've, you know, hit your number or you're about to you know, hit your number for what you envision for your practice. And then, you know, the question becomes, like now, what? Right. So, what's the next thing? So, you hit your number, you could kind of coast and have this lifestyle practice. And I think Anna and I both are of the mind that there are too many, you know, smaller lifestyle practices owned by advisors of color. And we need to have larger firms in order for us to really have the type of impact that we want to have on the industry so that we can have, um, you know, environments where. You know tens of advisors, um, you know, many of them advisors of color and, and women can be at a firm where they're you know, celebrated and and uh, feel comfortable and can you know be their authentic selves, and that's just not present in a meaningful way in the industry right now. So, uh, we both are passionate about that vision of of building that firm um, and. And frankly, taking away and rescuing, as, as Anna likes to say, uh, rescuing these advisors from these toxic environments where they're where they're working. I'll, I'll just you know, share this quick anecdote. Um, I spoke with an advisor this week. Great background, uh, education wise credentials, and you know, she was in a meeting with, with uh, her and, and another uh, white male advisor, and with a client. It's a client meeting, first time her first time she ever stepped into the meeting with this client. Uh, as soon as she sits down, the, the client looks to the the other advisor and says, "I don't want anyone black uh, working with me," and the the advisor who's her colleague apologized to the client um, and ended the meeting. So, like this is still taking place in twenty twenty three. So we're not in you know nineteen fifty three. This is twenty twenty three where where these types of uh, events or circumstances are are still happening and, and where companies aren't providing, uh, the types of environments in the culture where, uh, where advisors, particularly advisors of color can, can thrive and, and succeed.
3: Yeah. You need to get a new client there.
0: Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I mean, and when she said the, um, you know, the advisor apologized, like the advisor apologized to you, like, no, the advisor apologized to the client. So, you know, clearly the, the, um, the, um, yeah, it's, it's it's just it's sad that, that that's still taking place in you know in, in 2023. Um, but you know clearly there's there's a, there's a problem there of the culture and, and how they you know prioritize you know, the clients and revenue. Because I mean, maybe it's a huge client, maybe it's your biggest client in your you know entire portfolio. But um, do you allow a client to disrespect you know, one of your colleagues in that way? And what does that do to the relationship that you would have with that colleague? Right? Mm-hmm. If you don't step up in that moment and and um, and, and advocate on her behalf.
3: You know, Keith, I actually want to hop on one of the things that you brought up there, and this is kind of a counterpoint. I have an argument on the other side, too, but I like your point around the too many lifestyle practices uh, that have been created. I'd say probably out of necessity, right? Because people looked and said there wasn't a home for me, so I had to go create it. Um And I think that the starting point, totally understand it. I do think that the challenge to people, and I've had this conversation is, you know, if you want to see change at a broader level and you want to impact more people and you believe what you do, right, is impactful, that there is the argument that you have to eventually build scale in a larger enterprise, right? That like to some degree, you know, helping eight people, 20 people is great, but how do you help, right, 20,000 people? And like mm-hmm. that's actually what ends up causing change out there. Um, and sometimes it can be a bunch of people helping eight people at a time, right? Um, but it's hard. It's actually probably harder that way. And as you know, what we know about larger companies, right, is they eventually gain scale, they gain efficiencies, and that they can impact more people with fewer costs, and then all of a sudden you can reinvest that back in. And so there are benefits of if your goal is really to impact people, which is sometimes what I hear from lifestyle practices, it's like, Well, if that's really your goal, then like you should figure out a way to scale and become efficient. And like you guys did find somebody, you know, uh, that you could partner with to then be additive to each other and scale up. So I I do think that there's a really strong argument for what you both have done just from the impact standpoint there.
2: Yeah, and I love that you're like the terminology of rescuing people. There's a lot of people to be rescued also like and I know you've probably heard Um, the stories that were told at Diversitas last year. I don't know if anybody went to that um, event. It was a virtual event, but there were like, like, just like you said, Keith It's like, this is 2023 and this is still happening. Like this is ridiculous. And so, no, I, I just, and your team, your team is amazing. So talk to me a little bit about, um, did you expand more to bring people in or have you, have you added, how many people have you added and what's that process been like for you?
1: Yeah. So I think one of our, biggest goals like we, we really have two overarching goals um under one umbrella so the the one goal is to close the racial wealth gap and there's obviously different avenues that we can go from there <clears throat> one is to serve like households of color that want to work with advisors who have a similar lived experience to them and understand them and are not going to judge them and are it, To have a safe space to learn about money, to grow their wealth and to, you know, become more educated about financial markets and, you know, financial management and investing. And with the idea that that has a ripple effect in our communities. The second is to create a larger enterprise that is a... um, You know, viable option for lots of people to stay in this business, because as we know, like there's a pipeline issue um, in this. Well, there's not a pipeline issue. There's a there's a longevity issue in this industry. So we have lots of people that start off and they either stay in operations or they do not progress past like the administrative roles or HR roles and those kind of things. And so our goal is to help them, you know, get to wherever they want to, whether they want to have their own practice, whether they want to do compliance or they want to do investment management, whatever, and have a viable path for those folks who are oftentimes like limited in corporate. Um, You know, we have expanded. um, So we've hired one additional team member who um, late last year, you know, shortly after our, we merged our practices. And then we're also in the process of planning out some additional hires for this year, mainly on, um, you know, advise the advisor side. So having more, you know, lead advisors that can take some of the relationships because Keith and I's goal is to continue to focus in on the areas that we're best at and ensure that you know, we're continuing to bring in volume of clients and maybe, you know, we're not the best person for every single client. So we want to bring other advisors in that can, get, can backfill that and then some support on investment management investment analysis side too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so and, you know, there's percent. no shortage of, oh, sorry, Keith.
0: No, I was going to say we're a six person team now. We will I anticipate we'll be at nine by the end of the year. Conservatively.
2: Awesome. So um, I'm curious about some of like the challenges in merging the firms like this. Like, what what were some of those, and how did you kind of overcome them?
0: Lawyers, <laughs>
2: lawyers, lawyers like were it. the biggest
1: challenge. Sorry, Jamie. <laughs> Jamie's a lawyer.
3: Ferret, my wife's a lawyer too. Just lawyers causing problems. You all are great clients. We love
0: you as clients, but we don't, <laughs> we don't we don't want to be your client. <laughs> we love you as clients, but not, but not, but not as, our, as, as our service provider. Uh, Was well, I mean, it no, deal
3: documents? What yeah. Structure and deal documents. Just
1: took yeah. forever. And then they always had 8 million questions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then we respond to the questions. It takes them two weeks to get us new documents. Then we have to review them or they want to have a conversation with X and Y and Z person. And it's just, it's a lot. <laughs> Um, But I do think on the positive side, I'm a glass half full person, um, you know, that gave Keith and I more time to work through a lot of the logistics behind because it is a lot of work. And when you think about merging practices, it's, you know, figuring out what the tech stack is going to be and figuring out, um, you know, what your... Marketing plans are going to be because Keith and I had very different ways of marketing before then, um, you know, figuring out what your service models are going to be and ma- marriage- marrying those together. And luckily, in our case, I think we had pretty similar viewpoints on a lot of those things and pretty similar um, pricing and, you know compensation models and all of that. So it wasn't a huge bridge, but it still took a long time. And so that lag with the lawyers gave us a lot of time to have all of that stuff ready so that we were, you know, pretty well organized and had, we knew everything that needed to happen as soon as we were officially merged so that we could just kind of go off and execute on that stuff.
0: It's also a good process to go through because as we, I mean, we've had advisors that have reached out to us, um, you know, even though it's, it's not even though we're doing this rebrand and all that, but like advisors who have reached out who are experienced advisors who are bringing, you know, clients to the table more revenue to the table. So us going through the process, we have a better understanding of um, you know what the terms will be and, and how we would structure it for, for future advisors. So it was good to, to go through.
3: Yeah. will I will tell you the flip side though. I know advisors that have partnered together and never put deal documents together. And then when they go to break up later, I can tell you the pain in the front end of a bunch of questions and delays is is definitely worth it. Yeah.
1: (laughs) yeah. We're never
0: breaking up though, Jamie. Just for the right. We're we're never breaking up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We're stuck stuck together. This is (laughs) Awesome. I tell Keith, I'm like you. This must be like what I don't have brothers. I have two sisters. I'm like this must be what having a brother is like. And like he annoys me, and I annoy him. But like I, 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 value him and appreciate him so much. Um, because you know I, I, whatever. We we have a great relationship. But I'm like, yeah, this is this is like the brother I never had. So you're stuck with me. <laughs> I'm I'm the sister you never had.
0: <laughs> you are. You are. <laughs>
2: So is there any advice you have for others um, who might want to merge firms or who are looking to do the same, like a similar model? Yeah. I think having
1: so many conversations and getting really clear on the front end is important because I think a lot of advisors get really caught up on, oh, there's an opportunity here. And so we chase all of these shiny objects and, mm-hmm there's not as much intentionality. And so what ends up happening is, and, you know, we do this with clients and we we can do this with acquisitions as well. Um, And so what ends up happening is you have like a weird hodgepodge of a book or a practice, and then it, it doesn't work very well because you all don't have a similar MO or vision and way of doing things. And so I think it, having as many conversations upfront and, being okay with walking away from a potential partnership is also really important. So, you know, we had, we've had conversations with other advisors too in this process about potentially joining joining forces. And for some of them, it was really clear that there was not a good values alignment. You know, some of them. Seemed, you know, reading subtext might might have some some clients like the the anecdote that Keith <laughs> that Keith had mentioned. It's like that's not a great that's not a great values alignment um, mm-hmm. for our practice, and you know, not something that we would tolerate. And so maybe that's not great. And so it could have made us a larger firm, but I think when we consider the longevity, it's really important
0: to stay
1: true to that and have that be crystal clear between everybody that's involved.
0: Yeah, I'd say having alignment around the principles and values is is um, most important. So that's that's step one, and then I'd say just being crystal clear about the vision is is second. So like we have, I say, you know, if you ask us where do we you know see our firm in ten years, like we'll have very similar answers, Um, and I think that's that's. that's key because if, if if you're not clear on where the firm is going, then you know a lot of those those intermediate decisions that that are going to get you to the, there are going to be um, contentious and, and and problematic in a lot of ways. So I, th- I think being you know crystal clear about the vision and what you're building is um, is essential.
3: One of the questions that kind of came to my mind. I know we we've moved a little bit past that that one comment, but it's just been stuck in my head. So I kind of wanted to bring it up, which was the story about kind of saving the one advisor that that had that tough experience recently, a really unacceptable one was, you know, it actually highlights that part. And somebody posted this, uh, maybe I forget which uh, CPA, but one of the CPAs that I follow on Twitter posted from the Engage conference. And I've heard Ron say this and I saw it there, but stated slightly different was, That you're not a client first company you're like a stakeholder first company right because if you don't take care of your people first you can't really take care of anybody else and that's almost Mm -hmm. a great example of like not taking care of your person right because the apology wasn't to her it was to the client right so you didn't Mm -hmm. take care of your people then you're not going to be able to take care of them long term and it sounds like a little bit of what you all went through was also figuring out the right people that you want to have internally that are on the same mission. So you actually can go out and take care of the rest of the world.
1: hundred yeah. percent. And that was a huge part of our discussions around merging, but then also hiring. So, you know, we went through our first hire together. So, you know, I had my folks and Keith had his folks before. And, you know, when we merged together, we did this, we hired a disc consultant um, to talk mm-hmm. to us about to do disc analyses for everyone on the team, talk about how folks would fit into certain roles and how they would interact together. And so that was, I personally feel it was extremely instructive to me to understand who are the right people for the job. And then also, you know, how Keith works and how he thinks and how he operates and him to understand me and for me to under us to understand some of our other um, team members, because it, I think that that having the right people in the right job and the people with the right value system and focus is really important. Um, another thing we did is like in our job descriptions and our job posting, we're really clear about who we are and what we believe in and what's important to us so that anybody who's applying has a sense of like what we're looking for. Great.
2: So I just wanted to shift gears a little bit, and I know both of you have, we've, we've touched on it a little bit on the call so far, but both of you have been incredible advocates for expanding diversity, equity, and inclusion in our industry. And I'm curious, um, that's actually how Keith and I met. You used to write for the journal, you had a DI column there also. Um, but I'm curious to hear, do you all have any, any initiatives you're working on or anything like that, that, you know, you might want to highlight or that our listeners could help with? Anything
0: like that? Not yet. We don't have any major initiatives yet. Our, our, our initiatives are to to get to a point where we can hire advisors. So, and that's where that's where I've I've I made the uh, like the conscious decision, maybe like a year or so ago, um, where because you, yeah, I am sure Anna, you know, gets these calls, these emails. Um, you know, love the work you are doing, Keith. We'd love to pick your brain, and you can help us out with our you know DEI efforts and recruit other advisors of color. And I, I got to a point where I said, look, I'm not doing that anymore. So I think for me, um, when I think about how best I can uh, utilize, you know, my time and energy is with building re-envisioned wealth and getting us to a place where we can, you know, start where we can be competitive with these with these uh, other firms in a more um, in a more substantive way. So, you know, that's that, that's my kind of singular focus at the moment. Um you know, what What I do, I mean, one thing that we do do, like we do have office hours um, once a month where, you know, we invite, you know, 15, 20 folks that want to hop on a call with us and, and um, you know, learn from us on our journey and, and and what we're building. Um, so we do do that. But um, I know, Anna, I know I had the, the 20 by 2020 initiative, you know, several years ago and, and some, you know, other things I was working on, but... Right now, I'm just singularly focused on on building out our firm and and uh, you know getting us to a point where we can, you know, grow headcount, grow, um, you know, grow client base, AUM revenue, and, and and all the all the things.
1: Yeah, I think for me, it, I similar to Keith, um, you know, we're just really focused on growing this to be a really sustainable, long lasting company. Um, you know, I always say to my daughters, I'm like, if Mama keeps it up, and you guys put in hard work, like you can work here someday, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> we got a long, we have a long way to go, but um, you know, that would that would be a dream for me. So that's really my focus. I do obviously Anna and I have some things going on, but I won't I won't get ahead of myself. So um, to be to be announced later, Anna, I'll let you let you do that in the future. But you know, my goal is to grow re envision wealth to be something amazing and something that lasts that has an impact way beyond me it's not about me it's not about keith right it's about our our people that need um help and deserve to be served better yeah absolutely
2: and and it I don't know. I just think back to the, my time with y'all in October. And thank you again for inviting me. I'm an introvert and I don't like to do stuff like that normally, but I felt very included and welcomed by the team. And it was just We had, so a, good time, fun. Yeah. We had we a good did. time, Yeah, we did have a good time. Y'all are <laughs> amazing and you're building something great. So so thanks for coming on to the framework and sharing a little bit about it with us. Um, Jamie, anything else to add before I ask our last question?
3: Yeah. Uh- uh, no, I think before the last question, though, uh, we could do this part, then the last question, which is uh, w- what's the, the website best places to follow both of you mm-hmm. before we close out with our final question?
1: Yeah, oh, yeah. so I'm, I'm mostly on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn um, at A-N-J-I-E-K-O-N-T-E. Um, our website is com, And um, look forward to connecting with you all there.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm mostly on LinkedIn uh, these days, not as much on Instagram or, or Twitter. My Instagram is just my daughter's playing golf, uh, <laughs> literally. <laughs> uh, but I, my LinkedIn is just my name. So you know, Keith rebel you you'll, you'll find me. CFA, okay. yes. if you have to do a search. But yeah, and reenvisionwealth.com.
2: Awesome. Yes, yeah, so everybody connect with them on LinkedIn and check out their website. And we always like to close out by asking, what does finding your freedom mean to you? We'll let you go first, Keith, since I don't want first last time.
0: Sure. My, I say finding my freedom is having control over my time.
3: Love it.
1: Um, Anna? Yeah, for me, I think my sort of greater quest as a person is to break free of a lot of the things that I saw my own family struggle with, um, whether that be financial, physical, mental health, what have you, um, that's my so freedom to me is is being free of all of those things weighing me down, being a lot lighter.
2: Yeah, it's beautiful breaking those generational curses, right? That's, Amen. So, that's what it's yeah. all about. Well, thank you both. And thank you, Jamie, for for coming together today and sharing in the conversation. And thank you all for listening to this episode of the Framework Podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode.